Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. A massive parade is hitting the streets of New York City. Thousands of people celebrating the 31st World Falun Dafa Day. Our correspondent has more from the scene. Title 42 is no more. How are things looking down at the border? What's the best way forward? And how is this all playing out in the economy? We'll bring you analysis. Republican lawmakers say the Department of Energy is putting America on a dangerous path that harms energy security and benefits China. They grill Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm for answers. A secretive election group conference in Washington, D.C. this week. Our sister media was denied entry and an independent journalist was allegedly removed from the event. We bring you the details. A human tidal wave. That's what experts say is about to come across our border with the end of Title 42 last night. I wanted to find out what the raw numbers will mean for the U.S. legal system, so I spoke with Andrew Arthur, former immigration judge and resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew Arthur, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. So with Title 42 ending, we're expecting, obviously, a huge influx of illegal immigrants into the, into the country. Um, we already have a uh, massive backlog of immigration cases. Um, our latest numbers show over 2 million um, cases in the backlog. Um, how can courts be expected to deal with this backlog um, as it gets even bigger? Well, unfortunately, the Biden administration's uh, border policies are breaking the immigration courts. We have just over 600 immigration judges at courts all around the United States. And, you know, their ability to deal with 2 million, 2.2 million, probably 2.5 million before the year is out, uh, is very limited. Uh, so there really is very little that, uh, that the courts can do. They can move through these cases as quickly as possible. How long might these people be waiting to see an immigration judge? Yeah, uh, you know, right now we have reports out of New York uh, the people are waiting for 10 years just to get the paperwork that will put them into immigration court. And after that, I've heard that, you know, some people who have just been issued notices to appear, which are the charging documents in removal proceedings, are being scheduled for hearings in 2027. So about four years. So you can, you know, do the math, add it up. Uh, some of these people won't be seeing immigration judges until 2037. What are the ramifications of such long wait times? After so many years, I imagine it's difficult to track people down. Does this pose some kind of national security risk? There's a huge national security risk. Uh, you know, Border Patrol, DHS, is releasing people into the United States about whom they know very little. If you go down to the border, especially on the other side in Mexico, you'll see documents strewn everywhere. That's because people are ripping up their documents, uh, hiding their identities before they come into the United States. So the Biden administration is encouraging people to come here for work or to seek asylum legally. But we know that it takes a long time to get an asylum case and there's a limited number of work visas. Could this be why people are coming here illegally? And do you think our immigration system needs some kind of reform? That's exactly why they're entering illegally. You know, I think that, you know, some proportion, you know, 10 to 15 percent of the folks who are coming in are legitimate asylum seekers. The rest are taking advantage of the process uh, so that they can live and work here. And, you know, they will live and work here for a decade or more, if not indefinitely. The laws that are in place right now are sufficient to actually stop all of this. The Biden administration simply isn't using those laws and isn't enforcing those laws. Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. What are the economic impacts of Title 42 ending? Could an influx of illegal immigrants actually be beneficial for the economy, as some say? Here's more from Entity Business's Don Ma. All right, thanks, Chris. Now, more than 60,000 migrants were waiting near the U.S.-Mexico border, a border patrol chief told CBS this. This, of course, as Title 42 ended. 
Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz says that as of Thursday, nearly 25,000 migrants were in Border Patrol holding facilities. So here to talk to me about the economic impacts of an influx of migrants into the U.S. is Sam McGregor, political economy and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, Sam, I think uh, I already know where you stand on the illegal immigration issue. So I just want to challenge you a bit, you know, with some arguments counter to your position, um, you know, just to make it a, a bit more interesting. So now let me ask you, can there be positive impacts economically with an influx of migrants? You know, for example, um, perhaps increased economic output because illegal immigrants could contribute to the U.S. economy, actually, by producing goods and services and possibly purchasing goods and services themselves. Uh, and this could increase economic output. So can that stimulate economic growth? Well, I happen to be in favor of migration per se, because I think for certainly for the economic reasons, uh, migrants, for example, start more businesses than native-born Americans. Uh, migrants, of course, are helping to deal with the demographic problems that we have in the United States today. We're not having enough children, and until we have more children, uh, we're going to need more migrants. Uh, migrants are also filling up jobs in parts of the American economy where native-born Americans don't seem to want to take certain types of jobs. So all those economic benefits, I think, are very clear. But there is a problem with the illegal part of the illegal immigration. We have an absurd situation in the United States today where it's very easy to migrate to the United States illegally, but very hard to migrate here legally. It should be the opposite way around. And the illegality is per partly, of course, a rule of law question. You can't just have people and governments, for that matter, just simply ignoring what the law actually says. Breakdown and corrosion of rule of law has a significant economic effect insofar as it undermines people's certainty that the laws will be followed and the laws will be obeyed and the laws will be coherently applied. Imagine what it would be like if we had all those things that you just described but we had them operating within a system whereby people could come here legally instead of having to go through what is an incredibly inefficient, slow and hyper-bureaucratic way of entering the country legally. There are serious political and economic implications to violations of rule of law, which in many respects, I think, would outweigh some of the things, the very good things that you just mentioned that migrants, including illegal migrants, bring to the United States. Maybe just tell us, what, what are those implications? Well, for example, <clears throat> if you're living in a society like many of the societies from which migrants are coming from, predominantly from <clears throat> Latin America, we're talking about societies in which property rights are not respected, in which people do not have confidence in the legal system in delivering uh, just and equitable judgments, in which corruption is pervasive throughout the judicial system and the political system. And rule of law counteracts all those things insofar as it insists upon the basic equality of all human beings before the law, insofar as it insists upon the just application of the same laws to the same people at all times and all places. When all those things start to break down, it's not surprising that you see people starting to revert to ways of economic acting that in many respects start to erode foundations of a flourishing economy. Things like private property rights, things like the sanctity of contracts. Right, thank you, Sam. Pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks for having me on. Migrants have been expelled more than 2.7 million times under Title 42. Daily apprehensions rose above 10,000 this weekend. Detention capacity maxed out. Now, Trump first implemented Title 42 in March 2020 during the pandemic. Back to you, Chris. Chicago mayor-elect Brandon Johnson is set to take the helm on Monday. He will inherit a city with many challenges, one of which is businesses fleeing Chicago. Most recently, Walmart closed 50% of its stores in the city. NTD spoke with an expert about what Johnson should do after taking office. 
Walmart recently announced closing four of its eight stores in Chicago due to long-term profit loss. Bryce Hill, director of fiscal and economic research with the Illinois Policy Institute, says two main factors contributed to the failure of the stores. One is a rise in retail crime in recent years. Walmart says that the losses at their stores have uh, doubled in the past five years. Uh, so rising crime at, at store locations could be a factor. Chicago's crime rate dipped during the pandemic but surged in 2022. Boeing and Citadel left Chicago the same year. And Chris Krasimski, CEO of McDonald's, also publicly criticized the violent crime rates in Chicago last September. Another is just the cost of doing business in Chicago has risen. Not only have labor costs gone up, uh, but we also have the second highest commercial property tax rates in the, in the city of Chicago uh, of any other major metropolitan area. Chicago's commercial property tax rate on $1 million properties ranks the second highest in the nation after Detroit. That's according to a 2021 study by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. The Tax Foundation lowered Illinois' state business climate rankings from 29 to 36. The ranking includes corporate tax and property tax. Given the challenges, Hill advises Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson to reconsider the negative impact of his campaign proposal for $800 million in tax hikes. One of them is the proposal to raise $100 million with a high-end property transfer tax. That is another cost that businesses are going to be, be born with, uh, whether that is when they buy a property or when they're paying rent on a property, on a lease. Um, these are costs that are going to be passed down, especially for commercial properties. Another proposal is the reinstatement of the big business head tax, which the incoming mayor says could generate $20 million. It's a per employee tax for large Chicago businesses. Uh, I don't think businesses should be punished for employing Chicagoans, especially at a time where Chicago is still missing jobs compared to pre-pandemic levels. Hill suggests that Johnson retract those proposals. These are going to be raising business costs. It's not going to make anything friendlier for businesses. It's going to make things more difficult, add to the bottom line for these businesses and make them more likely to leave. Now, I think starting to walk back some of those proposals. As for crime, Hill has concerns with Johnson's previous support of the defund the police movement, but we'll wait and see his next steps. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. Republican lawmakers sought answers from Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm on Capitol Hill yesterday. The focus was nuclear energy and where it stands in President Biden's proposed 2024 budget. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what was discussed. Granholm testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee Subcommittee on Energy, Climate and Grid Security. Representative Jeff Duncan chairs the subcommittee. Energy is the foundational, is foundational and impacts every aspect of American life. Democrats rush to green policies are making energy unaffordable for too many Americans. Over the past two years, energy prices have skyrocketed. Duncan asked Granholm about the slow pace of movements to produce high-SA, low-enriched uranium called HALU in the U.S. HALU is critical to powering some advanced nuclear reactors. We need to do a, a whole project with respect to HALU and uranium overall. We do not want to be reliant on Russia. Lawmakers sought to prohibit uranium imports from Russia earlier this session. They argue it's consistent with last year's ban on Russian oil imports after the country invaded Ukraine. Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers says that access to affordable, reliable energy is foundational to the lives and future of Americans. Today, I'm deeply troubled that the Department of Energy under your leadership has put America on a dangerous path that harms our energy security and benefits our adversaries, mainly China. Roger says the Department of Energy has enabled the president to shut down American energy. The administration canceled the Keystone Pipeline, begged OPEC, Russia, and Venezuela to produce more oil and gas, supported the completion of Russia's Nord Stream Pipeline, and turned to China for solar panels and batteries made with slave labor and dirty manufacturing. 
Representative Scott Peters criticized Republicans for what he characterized as misrepresentations of the Biden administration's attitude on nuclear, hydroelectricity, and other non-hydrocarbon alternatives to wind and solar. However, he did acknowledge that speeding things up with regards to permitting reform would be beneficial for energy projects. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Today in New York, thousands of people are celebrating World Falun Dafa Day which officially falls on May 13th. This spiritual belief began spreading in China 31 years ago and has now spread to more than 100 countries and regions around the world. May 13th also marks the birthday of its founder, Mr. Li Hongzhi. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a mind and body meditation practice. Its core teachings are truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. Our reporter Arlene Richards is on the ground. It's been 31 years since the practice of Falun Dafa was first introduced to the public. Practitioners in Manhattan celebrate with a marching band, floats, and a parade through the city. I got a friend that I knew since I was nine years old, something like that. And when he starts practicing, I could notice like a very big difference. He like starts looking more healthy. He, he starts like getting his skin looks better, everything looks, looks better, and like I got very impressed by it. And he was like doing these exercises in the park, and after some time I joined him, feel so much better after doing that. And so after a little time I joined the practice and started feeling uh, like some illness that I, I used to have and stuff like that, I feel much better. Since we're like in a, in a time where people like have a lot of uh, mental illness and uh, anxiety and depression like since it cured me uh, I, I'm sure it can like benefit you so maybe give it a try and see see how you feel and you know it also teaches me how to be a better person and I feel like good about that and it helps me a lot so maybe you could do the same for you. I saw Farhan Dafa's message uh, in a social media post and I it changed my I was curious about it, and I started looking online for the for the practice. I started to read uh, the, the books, and or started to read and also watch the videos about Falun Dafa, and I was really intrigued by it. And I started to uh, learn more about it, and then eventually I get into the practice. Uh, I found the practice to be very uh, helpful. Right? It it gave me uh, better mental health and the physical health, uh, give me a piece of serenity. A secretive meeting held by an elections group with ties to George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg. Only pre-approved media was allowed, and one journalist was allegedly removed from the event after questioning a certain narrative. Here are the details and clips from the event. An election group with ties to billionaire George Soros and Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg gathered in Washington this week. They held a meeting that was closed to the public. The event was called the Summit on American Democracy and hosted by the Center for Election Integrity and Research. The Epic Times was denied entry to the event. Organizers said it was invite only. Only pre-approved press and other guests were permitted to attend the summit. The event was live streamed, but the closed nature of it left independent media without access to the list of high-ranking officials attending the summit. Among those attending the conference were Georgia's Secretary of State and the County Supervisor for Maricopa County, Arizona. The elections group founder said this during the event. The November 2020 election was, simply put, the most secure, transparent, and verified presidential election in American history, and it's not close. Journalist Laura Loomer was allegedly removed from the conference after challenging this narrative. I just confronted election officials from Maricopa County, Arizona, and Georgia and asked them why they are attending this hyperpartisan, Soros-tied, and Zuckerberg-funded conference to discuss the 2024 elections. They called the police on me. In August 2020, Becker's organization received almost $70 million from Zuckerberg. This funding was used to furnish key swing states with more mail-in drop boxes amid the COVID pandemic. Prior to founding his election center, Becker worked with the Pew Charitable Trust. That organization is funded by Soros' Open Society Foundation. According to the center's homepage, it is nonpartisan, stating it has a proven record of working with election officials from around the country in both sides of the aisle. We reached out to the organization for comment on the funding and alleged partisan ties, but didn't immediately hear back. 
addressing voter confidence in Congress. Witnesses yesterday spoke about censorship and donor influence and what Congress can do to control it. Arlene Richards has more. Political speech is protected speech, Chairman Brian Stiles said in opening remarks on Thursday at the House Administration Committee hearing. Stiles introduced the American Confidence in Elections Act, or ACE Act, aimed at protecting political speech in elections. The hearing explored what campaign finance reforms and donor privacy protections are necessary to restore voter confidence. Witnesses on the panel addressed different concerns, such as social media censorship, amending federal campaign laws, and protecting political speech. Witness Stephen Spaulding, Vice President for Policy and External Affairs, Common Cause, said political speech is under attack. Voter suppression, gerrymandering, and the undue influence of big money in politics form a trifecta that silences voters. The Supreme Court's decisions in Citizens United and McCutcheon ripped a massive tear in the fabric of laws that Congress passed to stop corruption and bring transparency to our elections. Just 100 people, enough to fit into this hearing room, contributed nearly three quarters of the $1.2 billion people contributed to super PACs in the last cycle. Put another way, a hundred people pumped 60% more money into our elections than millions of small donors combined. He said so much of this money is undisclosed because the Supreme Court's decision permitted corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money on elections and that it is up to Congress and state houses across the country to fix the problem. Most panelists agreed that reform measures were necessary to resolve past corruption activities. Witness Audrey Perry Martin, a political campaign and finance attorney, said federal election campaign laws need modernization to keep the law in line with current political realities. Current federal campaign finance laws are woefully outdated. Significant changes have occurred in campaign finance policy, in technology, and in the political landscape since the last time Congress passed a substantial amendment to the campaign finance law over 20 years ago. Other witnesses on the panel called out efforts between government and private actors to influence the outcome of our elections. Reporting over the last year has revealed the extensive coordinated efforts between government actors, big tech, nonprofits, and academics to identify and censor what they collectively deem to be, quote, misinformation. What we know about the scope of this government-dictated and privately facilitated speech-killing machine is truly staggering, and we certainly don't know the full picture yet. She said censorship efforts were largely uncovered through legal actions, but the release of the Twitter files last fall confirmed growing concerns. Ranking member Joe Morrell and other Democrats said disclosure laws are a crucial tool in combating covert donations in elections. He cited the recent indictment of New York Representative George Santos for allegedly misusing campaign funds and recent reports that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas received lavish gifts and trips from Republican donor Harlan Crow. Norfolk Southern unveils plans to help homeowners in East Palestine, Ohio, whose homes lost value due to the toxic train derailment in February. The company says it plans to compensate people who live in a five-mile radius of the derailment and who sell their home for less than it was valued before the derailment. Details of the plan were in a letter sent to the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. Norfolk Southern says it expects to start those payments within one year. The train was carrying hazardous materials when it derailed in East Palestine on February 3rd, and officials then tried to burn off the chemicals. The derailment cost the company approximately $380 million, but they might get some of that money back from insurers. Former Marine Daniel Penny turned himself in to police today to face a manslaughter charge. The charge stems from a fatal chokehold incident that resulted in the death of a homeless man, Jordan Neely. The incident occurred on the New York City subway. Neely was reportedly acting aggressively and screaming at passengers in the subway car, saying he was ready to die. Penny allegedly came up from behind him and restrained him on the floor of the subway car until he appeared to stop moving. Neely was later declared dead. Neely had a history of multiple violent attacks on subway riders. He allegedly punched a 67-year-old woman in the face in 2021, breaking her nose and facial bone. Court records say he punched another woman in the face on the subway four months prior. 
He also reportedly surprise-punched two men in the face on different subway platforms in 2019, breaking one man's nose. In a statement from his legal team, Penny expressed condolences to those close to Mr. Neely. Some sense of relief for the family of Natalie Holloway, the American teenager who disappeared nearly 18 years ago in Aruba. One of the last people to see her alive is being extradited to the United States. Joran Vandersloot faces extortion and fraud charges in the U.S. He's already serving time for murdering a different woman in Peru. Here's how it all relates to Holloway's disappearance. 18 years after Alabama teenager Natalie Holloway vanished on a school trip in Aruba, the prime suspect in her disappearance is being extradited to the United States. Joran Vandersloot, who was one of the last people to see Holloway alive and twice detained in connection with her disappearance, will finally face federal charges in the U.S. for extortion and wire fraud. He knows exactly what happened. He knows what, where, when, who, why, and how. He knows the answers. He is accused of extorting thousands from Holloway's mother, Beth, in exchange for details on the location of her daughter's remains. According to legal documents in March 2010, Vandersloat, quote, offered to take the cooperating witness to the location of Natalie Holloway's body, advised as to the circumstances of her death, and identify those in her death and disappearance in return for a payment of $250,000. Papers were signed, a total of $25,000 was given to Vandersloat, and Holloway's attorney flew to Aruba. Vandersloat took the attorney to a house saying her body was buried within the foundation. Soon after fleeing to Peru with the $25,000, he emailed the Holloways saying, quote, he had lied about the location of Natalie's remains. Extortion charges were filed a short time later. In May 2005, the 18-year-old Holloway was last seen leaving a nightclub in Aruba with Vandersloat and two other men. All three were charged by Aruban prosecutors in 2007 for involvement in manslaughter, but a judge ordered their release, citing a lack of direct evidence. Her body was never found. Beth Holloway said in a statement, she would be 36 years old now, it has been a very long and painful journey, but the persistence of many is going to pay off. Together, we are finally getting justice for Natalie. After the U.S. legal proceedings conclude, Vandersloat will be sent back to Peru, according to a statement from Peru's judiciary, to a Peruvian prison where he is serving time for the murder of 21-year-old Stephanie Flores. She was murdered five years after Holloway's disappearance. And in 2012, he was sentenced to 28 years in prison for that murder. In 2012, an Alabama judge signed an order declaring her legally dead. A Holloway family representative says Vandersloot's extradition is expected to begin Thursday. Vandersloot's lawyer says he will appeal Peru's decision. The suspect in last year's deadly church shooting in California is now facing federal hate crimes and weapons charges. A grand jury charged David Wenwei Cho with 98 counts, including 45 counts of obstructing free exercise of religious beliefs by force, and 45 counts of violating the federal hate crime laws. The U.S. Department of Justice says Cho opened fire on the Geneva Presbyterian Church in J Laguna Woods back in May of last year. One man was killed. Five others were wounded. The DOJ alleges Cho acted because of the victim's national origin and religion. The shooting occurred during a Taiwanese church service. If Cho is convicted, he could face a life sentence or the death penalty. Cho is currently being held in California in custody for criminal charges connected to the shooting, including murder, attempted murder, and possession of an explosive device. One of Hawaii's major roads is closed just before the summer tourist season. A car was damaged last week, highlighting the need for repairs. The county of Maui says recent rockfall has it shutting down Hana Highway for road work. That means people won't be able to drive between Hana and Kaupo, possibly for a month. According to the county engineers, say the cliffside along the route is unsafe. Falling rocks and mud damaged a vehicle last week. The driver wasn't hurt, but the event prompted concerns about the highway. Coming up, Canadians react to the expulsion of Chinese diplomat from Canada. 
That's after he threatened a Canadian lawmaker and his family. Was the response too late? And a lot of uncertainty remains in Thailand's upcoming election. Will the country move away from the remnants of a military rule? We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. A man in Boston is accused of sending info on Chinese dissidents back to Beijing. He was arrested yesterday. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. A Chinese-American arrested in the U.S. He's accused of spying for the Chinese Communist Party. U.S. authorities apprehended the man in Boston after an indictment from a federal grand jury. The allegation that the man has been briefing Beijing with a list of Chinese dissidents in the U.S. The man is named Liang Li Tang. The 64-year-old is a U.S. citizen. The indictment says Liang has been acting as Beijing's agent since 2018. Since then, Liang allegedly contacted the Chinese consulate in New York and started sending them information about Chinese individuals and organizations in Boston. Liang also allegedly sent over photos and information on Chinese dissidents in the U.S. Beyond that, officials say he recommended potential recruits to Beijing. Lastly, the indictment alleges during a rally in support of Hong Kong, Liang organized a counter-protest and that he snapped photos of pro-democracy protesters and sent them to Chinese officials. A Hong Kong protester that attended the rally tweeted in response to his arrest, saying that she was relieved, outraged and disappointed at the same time. Liang's hearing is set for Thursday. His indictment comes amid other Justice Department efforts to quell Chinese influence on U.S. soil. U.S. law enforcement arrested two men in lower Manhattan last month. The Justice Department alleged the two men opened and operated a Chinese police station in the heart of New York City. That's at the order of Chinese authorities. The order allegedly came from a local branch of China's Ministry of Public Security, a government body in charge of China's law enforcement. The two defendants both live in New York. Harry Lu Jian Wang lives in the Bronx, while Chen Jinping is based in Manhattan. Tensions are high between Canada and the Chinese regime. Canada expelled a Chinese diplomat earlier this week for threatening a lawmaker and his family. People in Canada react to the news. Here's the story. The Canadian government on Monday expelled Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei, who had been based in Toronto. Zhao was accused of targeting Canadian lawmaker Michael Chong and intimidating his family members in Hong Kong in 2021. Former Canadian Member of Parliament Kenny Chiu tells NTD his reactions. I think the, the reaction from Canada, it's not only measured, but some would argue that it's a bit late. However, having a response is better than not having any response, I suppose. The Chinese diplomat targeted Chang because he was outspoken about the Chinese regime's human rights abuses. Gloria Fung, president of Canada Hong Kong Link, says Canada should have taken action two years ago. If Michael Chang, as the opposition party's shadow foreign minister, could have been threatened and intimidated, we could imagine how much worse it will be for ordinary Canadians to be targeted. This is an extremely serious case of transnational repression. Jonathan Fan, president of the Canadian Asian Community Think Tank, points out the role that Hong Kong's national security law played in this incident. Member of Parliament Michael Chong has a Hong Kong background, so that means the Hong Kong national security law was used as a tool to persecute foreign relatives. Chinese-Canadian author and human rights activist Sheng Shun says Canada's decision to expel Zhao reflects the public opinion of Canadians. She calls it a win for Canada's democratic values. By now, Canada and most democracies around the world have learned their lessons and have come to a clear understanding of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese regime responded to the expulsion of Zhao by expelling Canadian diplomat Jennifer Lin Lalande, who was based in Shanghai, a day later. Turning to Thailand, a final push today to galvanize support and woo the undecided ahead of a Sunday election. 
Voters will choose whether to stay the course with the military-linked conservatives or opt for change. Let's take a look at the main contenders. It's been described as a pivotal moment for democracy in Thailand. As some 52 million people head to the polls on Sunday. After a coup in 2014 and nearly a decade of a government led or backed by the royalist military, voters have the chance now to elect members of a new 500-seat House of Representatives. The whole world is watching this election, right? And the military now is not that influential. Let's take a look at who the main contenders are. On the one side, we have the party of incumbent Prime Minister Prayut Jan Osha, a former army general who seized power in the coup nine years ago before refashioning himself as a civilian leader. His newly formed party, the United Thai Party, is running on the promise of continuity and has vowed to protect conservative values and the monarchy. On the other side is the Pu'er Thai Party, which Prayut ousted from power. Controlled by the billionaire Sinawat family, it's the largest party in Thailand and has been popular with the rural and urban working class. Polls say it is likely to win the most seats as it has in every vote since 2001. Right now, I think the country needs a lot of change because uh, it's been suffering for eight years. And um, I think um, when, I, when I imagine my kids are growing up in this country, I see no future. I see only like debts. Seeking to capitalize on the youth vote is the Move Forward Party, which has been enjoying a late surge in the polls, thanks to the appeal of its Harvard-educated leader, Peter Lim Jaron Rat. Sunday's election is the first to be held since mass youth-led protests in 2020, which called for the military to be removed from politics. The Move Forward Party was not officially part of the student protests, but some activists are running as party candidates and many are party workers. It's also the only party pushing for amendments to Thailand's strict royal insult law that punishes offenders with up to 15 years in jail. Another important contender is the regional heavyweight, Pum Jai Thai. The party's stature has grown with its successful push to make Thailand Asia's first country to legalize the sale of cannabis. The party's seats could be crucial in determining who forms a government. So how will a leader be chosen? Parties winning more than 25 seats can nominate their prime ministerial candidate, although it is likely parties will strike deals between them to back certain candidates. Those chosen will be put to a vote, likely in August, of the newly elected lower house. But Senate also has a vote, and its 250 seats are appointed by the military. There is, however, a sense that this time, things may be different. In the 2019 election, no matter how people voted, it's quite certain that General Prayut will be the prime minister. That seems like there's no other way around. But this time, this uncertainty is overwhelmingly, and it's very possible that General Prayut might be sidelined. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, an experimental skin patch could lessen peanut allergies. Scientists are especially hopeful about its potential for toddlers. And Swiss scientists develop a new kind of brain implant that could help treat neurological issues. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. An experimental skin patch for toddlers who are highly allergic to peanuts is showing some potential. It could make exposure regimens much easier. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the new medication. The Vi skin patch was created for small children with peanut allergies. Researchers report that two-thirds of toddlers who wore the daily patch for a year could safely eat a few peanuts. Dr. Matthew Greenhot helped lead the study. We have a therapy that can potentially increase the amount of peanut that it will take for your child to react and ideally 
decrease the severity of any reaction once they get to that point of, of, of lowering that risk. The Viaskin patch is coated with a small amount of peanut protein that is absorbed into the skin. The daily patch is worn between the shoulder blades so toddlers can't pull it off. Not all parents want an oral route. I mean, if you think about what happens, these are children who have eaten this food before and have reacted. And for some of them, it's a non-starter that they will ever want to put that food in their mouth again. Some kids outgrow the allergy, but most must avoid peanuts for life and carry emergency medication like an EpiPen. Greenhot says there's been a lot of progress in the last 15 years. From when I started uh, as an allergist in 2006, we are light years ahead of the game. Back then, we really had nothing that we could tell a parent other than you'll need to avoid this for life. You'll need to carry emergency medicine for life. The FDA is considering the patch, but wants additional data. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A new study shows sleep apnea can lead to frightening brain damage. Apnea is a condition described as stopping breathing for 10 seconds or more multiple times per night. Researchers found people with severe sleep apnea get less deep sleep and develop damage to the white matter of their brains. This matter forms connections between brain cells and the rest of the nervous system. Damage to it slows the brain's ability to process information and remember things. The damage can be seen on MRI scans, but once it has occurred, there is no known way to reverse it. A study author says for every 10% decrease of time spent in deep sleep, the amount of white matter damage is equal to aging 2.3 years. Nearly 940 million adults suffer from sleep apnea worldwide, and many more are thought to have it and not know about it. The study appears in the new issue of the journal Neurology. A major advancement in soft robotics. A team of Swiss scientists have developed a soft electrode array which fits on the brain. It could be used to treat epilepsy and other neurological disorders. It fits through a tiny hole in the skull and fans out to sit on the surface of the brain. An electrode developed by Swiss scientists to monitor brain activity in a safer and less invasive way. We, we decided to, to work on this project because we had a request from a colleague neurosurgeon asking us to find ways to insert implant at the surface of the brain in a minimally invasive manner, meaning that we should make the, the smallest hole possible in the skull in order to position the electrode on the surface of the brain. The work was inspired by a neurosurgeon who wanted to be able to connect a large area of the surface of the brain without removing the same amount of the patient's skull. The device has six arms and is folded inside a cylindrical capsule called a loader. It's so small and so soft that it can fit through a hole in the skull that's less than half an inch in diameter. The electrode is then deployed one arm at a time, quadrupling in diameter and maximizing contact with the cortex. The soft material of the mechanism minimizes pressure on sensitive brain tissue. This is a, an example of the, of the system when it is fully deployed. So you have to imagine that uh, this uh, sort of a flower shape is now sitting at the surface of the, of the brain. And this little vial that you have at the surface is a, a loading structure where initially all of the petals are folded in. So the challenge was to find the right materials, so soft materials, to, and then materials that are electrically active, so we could make electrodes to record information from the brain, um, which could sustain then a large deformation. The soft electrode array could be used to provide minimally invasive solutions for people like epilepsy patients. The device will be able to record seizures, and data collected from the device would in turn be used to inform treatment. It's already been successfully tested on a pig, and is set for production by Swiss medical manufacturer Neurosoft Bioelectronics. Coming up, designers from all over the world show off their products at Berlin Design Week. We'll show you some 3D printed ceramics and traditional designs. And a new documentary celebrates travel and learning about local history and culture. We'll take you to the premiere at the Eiffel Tower here on NTD News Today.
Designers from all over the world are showcasing their products at Berlin Design Week. This year, the focus is on 3D printed ceramics and modern versions of traditional Slovenian designs. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Berlin Design Week is one of the design industry's highlights of the year. The event has been running since 2018. Every year, designers and artists from across the world travel to the German capital for the event. I present here um, Slovenian cultural heritage. It is uh, jewelry made it with uh, a treat from uh, a met metal treat, and it is very special in Slovenia. The Association of Portuguese Ceramics has taken up a large spot at the festival. Traditional ceramic designs are mixed with more contemporary products. China and Italy are large ceramic exporting countries, but Martin Cicciaro says that Portugal offers a competitive ceramics export market. We are here to promote the ceramic, to promote our diversity, our art of possibility, that we mix the heritage, the culture of Portugal ceramic, the know-how of Portugal ceramic. Cindy Valdez is originally from Peru. Now she's based in Berlin and is showing a modern twist on traditional ceramics. Her works are inspired by natural shapes and colors. All our designs are inspired on shape of biodiversity and organic shapes. So we find new aesthetics that we want to present to the public. For example, this, and you can use it like this. And this way we want to get biodiversity and natural more presence in interior rooms and in tableware. But Valdez's products are also made with modern methods. All are 3D printed. She sees the technology as progress. It's a new technique. It's something new in ceramics. It's nice to bring new techniques to people, to, to society. And it's like a new limit of the material. We create also our own technology behind. Berlin Design Week runs through May 17th. Entry to most events and exhibitions are free. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you like to travel, then you'll like this next story. NTD's France correspondent David Vives attended a premiere at the Eiffel Tower for a new documentary released today on Amazon called The Art of Travel. A journey of a thousand miles always begins with a single step. An old Chinese saying goes, Traveling is not just a hobby, but an art. That's one message of a new documentary which was just released on Amazon. It features Lyon-based journalist Shimus Kearney. Where you film in France, there are so many places. And I think what was nice with this project was we tried to look for places that were actually very unique. And this reinvention of travel, this art of travel, if you like, it's really trying to you know, change the status quo. So how are we going to make sure that the experience stays good? The Art of Travel explores different French regions and monuments, from Chenonceau Castle in the Loire Valley to the iconic Molitor Pool in Paris. What exactly is the French art of life? There is no simple answer. Some would say it's about caring for cultural heritage, gastronomy, know-how, and the je ne sais quoi, something that makes people dream of France. Beatrice Fouché, brand CEO of DS Automobile, is a co-producer of the documentary. It's about being more authentic. We said it quite a few times, in fact. It's about building very personal experiences. That's to say, we don't go on a trip to copy a social norm, but we go on a trip because it corresponds to who we are, who we want to be, and how we want to live. So the journey is the experience, so the film shows that. The documentary also suggests that travelers should keep an interest in history and culture, talk to locals as much as possible, and stay open to new experiences to better soak in the places they're visiting. I think everybody who travels is really, we're making a film. They're making a film. They want to have smartphones, or we're creating images in our mind. And I think that's, that's the essence of it. I think we have to let people create their own experiences. We have to have the human element, lots of emotion, and it has to be real. And they have to, they have to be actors in the story and not just observers. It's a way of looking at luxury as the things that we want to have. I think it's a rather strong tendency to say that it's what I call the memory hook. Does it remind you of anything? 
It's a little bit like Prost Little Madeleine. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. A lineup of precious items are up for sales at Sotheby's Geneva. Auction house highlights include a vibrant Bulgari diamond ring, along with some rare watches. The pear-shaped blue diamond weighs over 11 carats. Actress Priyanka Chopra wore it at the New York Met Gala last week. It was set on her necklace. Sotheby's says the ring is the largest and most valuable Bulgari jewel ever to hit the auction block. Its estimated value hits $25 million. The sale also features a 1969 Rolex Daytona valued at over $600,000. If you have 100 in steel, you have one in gold. And especially with this, um, this combination with the black bezel, black dial, and the colors of the JPS, um, nicknamed after John Player Special, uh, the Formula One car racing team. Um, it's, it's just, it's very rare to see it. And this comes from a private uh, consigner, uh, first owner. Uh, he had his uh, the whole lifetime since uh, the end of the 60s. Even older is a Turkish pocket watch from the early 19th century. Made in gold and enamel, in the jewelry section, a Van Cleef and Arpels bracelet draws potential buyers with its engraved emeralds. Next to it is a cushion-shaped sapphire pendant weighing more than 130 carats. There's also Bulgari's signature coiled serpent design bracelet and Cartier's iconic diamond onyx and emerald necklace. The live auction in Geneva will run through next Tuesday with online sales available. Proceeds are estimated at over 150 million combined. At a zoo in the South American nation of Peru, visitors are enjoying an overload of cuteness. During Mother's Day celebrations, the zoo showed off its youngest residents. On display was a baby kangaroo who hung out in its mother's pouch as she grazed and reclined. Rio Mayotiti monkeys crawled among branches and looked curiously around. Acunias strutted back and forth as they peered at the zoo visitors who came to look at them, and young water buffalo amazed onlookers while still looking as tough as older members of their species. An animal management and conservation officer at Lima's Parque de las Leandas Zoo says the birth of these animals brings joy to staff and visitors alike, and notes the zoo contributes to the conservation of these species. And this Mother's Day might set a new record. A survey predicts Americans will shell out $35 billion for their moms. The most popular gifts are flowers and cards. On behalf of all of us at NTD, we wish you a happy holiday to all the wonderful mothers in the world.